Well, good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you are uh, with us this morning. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here, um, and it's my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, that's where we're going to be in God's Word, James chapter 1. This is the third week in our series, just walking through the book of James, which is going to take us uh, most of the summer, um, but I'd love it if you would, on a Bible app or in your actual real physical Bible, turn to James 1, and I'll meet you there in just a couple of minutes. Um, I hadn't planned to say this, but I said it to the first hour, and so I feel like I need to say it to y'all as well. Um, you know, we walk into the room on a day like today, and Matt's already spoken to the fact that Mother's Day is a day of celebration and joy for many, um, and a day that like, is uh, marked by heartache and pain for others. Um, and so we come into this place like feeling the feelings. Um, and I just think it's so critical when that is the case. Uh, to make sure that we remember what this is really all about. Um, and I say that because um, it's possible to, to gather with God's people on the Sunday of Mother's Day, um, and especially when you see us in a kind of like parade in front of you, a few families who are making a commitment to the Lord. Um, it's, it's possible to conclude that, that moms are at the center of what we're doing right now. Um, and I just want to push on that because that's, that's really not true. Um, in church circles, often, like Mother's Day is a day when mom is really celebrated, right? When like you come in and like people like get really excited about how awesome mom is. Um, and then the irony of that is that six weeks later, you come back in on Father's Day and usually the pastor like beats up dads a little bit and like lays down a challenge about what dads need to be doing differently or more of or better. But the thing is, those are, those are two sides of the same non-Jesus coin, because what we do in this space, in this time, it's never about the performance or lack of performance of any merely human person. What we do in this space, it's all about our celebration of Christ's performance that is imputed to us when we trust in the gospel by faith. And so we're not here to celebrate moms that we think moms are awesome. And in six weeks, we're not going to be here to tear down dads, though, of course, man, dads could be doing better, right? We're here in this space today and every Sunday to acknowledge the fact that we are needy people, as we've just sung, in desperate need of our Savior, and to recognize the way that God has provided that Savior for us in the form of his Son. So I'm glad that you're with us on Mother's Day to celebrate something other than mothers. All right, when I was preparing uh, for the sermon this week, um, I got an email um, this email uh, informed me that I was the blessed recipient of an incredible opportunity, right? There is apparently a dethroned and defamed Nigerian prince um, who, for, for merely sharing with him my personal information, like my social security number, my driver's license number, and my bank account number and routing number, if all I had to do was share with him all of that personal information, and then that would somehow, some way, allow this dethroned, defamed Nigerian prince to have access to the money in the Nigerian national treasury that is rightly his as a member of the royal family. And in exchange for sharing with him, again, my driver's license number, social security number, bank account number, routing number, he was going to extend to me hundreds of thousands of dollars of his personal money from the Nigerian National Treasury. And I got this email on this week, and I just thought, man, what an opportunity, right? How lucky am I that this defamed, dethroned Nigerian prince chose me, right? Of all the people in the world, I'm the lucky sap that he chose to email 
this week with this incredible opportunity. I really thought, like, imagine all of the theology books that I can buy with hundreds of thousands of dollars of this Nigerian prince's money. Sometimes deceit is pretty obvious, right? Sometimes we see it coming from a mile away, a cursory look through your spam folder or mine on your email account would confirm that. But there are other times when deceit is not so obvious, right? Another email scam that is out there, um, and this is a word of warning too. Um, Occasionally, um, there's a dude or a program, I don't know, um, that will use an email address that looks like mine, right? It'll say like, pastorjamesharp at gmail.com or something like that. And this email address will email members of our church, um, informing them of a family that's in need. And this email address will solicit gift cards that can be given to this family to help meet a particular financial need. And on more than one occasion, there have been members of our church who've gotten that email. And again, it's not from me, but members of our church who've gotten that email and they thought this looks legit. And so they've, they've, out of generosity and love, gone and purchased some of those gift cards and been on the verge of like mailing those gift cards to, you know, some dude who's living in his mom's basement in all likelihood, just trying to scam people rather than working for a living. They've been on the verge of falling for the scam only to realize that it wasn't legit. Because sometimes deceit is not so obvious to us. And I would say that that is especially true of spiritual deceit. You can be deceived in your Christian life so easily. You can be deceived into believing that your walk with the Lord is faithful when it's not. You can be deceived into believing that your conduct is righteous when it's not. You can be deceived into believing that the posture of your heart is humble when it's not. Spiritual deception, it's far more difficult to identify than financial scams are. And spiritual deception is far deadlier than financial scams. In the second half of James chapter one, James takes up the matter of spiritual deception. In verse 26, we're gonna look at this next week, he tells us that if you think you're religious, but you don't control your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart. That's a matter of spiritual deception. In verse 22, he's going to tell us that if you hear the word of God, but don't put it into practice, you're deceiving yourself. That too is a matter of spiritual deception. And then in our passage today, James 1 verses 12 through 18, James addresses two more deceptions. Now these deceptions, they are especially prevalent when we are enduring trials Right, trials, that's what James has been talking about. We looked at that issue last week in, in verse 2 through 12. James tells us that trials are something we should count as joy because God uses them to grow us and to accomplish his good and glorious purposes. But James also knows that there is a twin deception that can sneak into our minds when we face trials. Trials can tempt us. They can deceive us. First, to forget who we really are. And then second, to forget who God really is. James addresses those two deceptions in these verses. Now here's the sermon in one sentence today. When trials come, 
you must know yourself and you must know your God. In other words, in trials, we must prepare ourselves and equip ourselves to, to tell the truth rather than to believe the lie of these two deceptions. Any failure to remember who you really are when trials come and any failure to remember who God really is when trials come means that you have been deceived, James says. Let's look together at what he writes. We're going to start in verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, we looked at this verse last week because really it brings the first half of the chapter and the teaching on trial to a close. James is saying that you're actually blessed when you encounter trials. You're blessed because those trials, when you remain steadfast under them, they secure for you what he calls the crown of life, the the righteous and glorious reward that God has reserved for all of his people who, who make it through life holding on to their faith, who endure in the faith until the end. James says that we'll receive a a glorious reward that God promises to his people if we don't abandon our faith in him. That's the teaching of verse 12. But the main reason I wanted to start with that verse again this week is because there's one word of great significance here that sets the stage for what James is about to say in verses 13 through 18. Pay attention to the word test. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What James is saying is that trials are a test, a test that you can pass or a test that you can fail, but a test that will reveal something. In this case, they reveal something about ourselves and they reveal something about our God. And so verses through 15, 13 through 15, they tell us what trials reveal about ourselves. And verses 16 through 18, what our trials reveal about God. So let's just talk about those two things. You see the two big ideas in this message this morning. First, what do trials reveal about us? Or, to put it another way, how can we avoid being deceived about ourselves? What does it mean for us to know ourselves? Let's read. Start in verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James begins talking about us by telling us that temptation, it cannot come from God. God is a sinless being, and a sinless being cannot tempt any other being to sin. God is holy, and the holy one cannot tempt anyone else into unholiness. And so God cannot, and God does not, and God will not tempt us. But if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. James is teaching us that the 
origin of temptation is from within the heart of the one who is tempted. Temptation, it comes from within. And so trials and circumstances, they can intensify temptation. Satan, our spiritual enemy, he can exacerbate temptation. But temptation is never something that begins outside of you. It starts within. Temptation comes first and foremost from within your heart. Now, there are only um, a handful of religious experiences that I really remember from my youth. Um, When I grew up, my mother is a faithful believer in Jesus, still is a faithful believer in Jesus, and uh, she would would drag my younger brother and me to church as often as she could. But as I got older, like especially into my later teenage years, I realized that she wasn't really like interested in a fight every Sunday morning. And so if I put up just enough of a protest, then she wouldn't drag me with her. um, And I could stay home and either sleep in or watch football or whatever it is that I wanted to do. And so Um, My last few years still living in her house were really characterized by that. I was not particularly interested in spiritual things, not particularly interested in God or anything that he said or did, not particularly interested in Christianity. I think I still thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't a Christian in any way. Um, However, God saved me miraculously um, through the ministry of a friend in high school who invited me to start reading the Bible with him, and I did, and I realized that I wasn't actually a Christian, and he opened my eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, and he opened my heart to see the authority and wonder of a God who relates to us through his word, Um, and it was through like that friend's relationship with me that I really started to follow Jesus myself for the first time. But, but that meant that like, you know, until I was 18 or so, there, there really weren't any religious experiences that I had that actually had any meaning for me. And really very few that I even remember still today. But there's one. Um, it happened the summer after, I believe, my sixth grade year. So I was entering seventh grade. It was during the summer. And my mom, she somehow persuaded me to attend the summer youth camp with the youth group from the church that she was attending. And I said yes, probably because I knew that there would be girls there or something like that. And um, I went on this, this week-long trip to this summer camp, which was, man, I remember it was just insufferably hot. It was in East Texas in the middle of July. You know, like the thermometer would say 98, 99, 100 every day, plus 100% humidity on top of that. It was just gross. There was a, there's no air conditioning anywhere on the camp premises except for in the dining hall. Um, and I think probably because they knew that like everybody would spend every moment in the dining hall, they kept the dining hall locked except for meal times. And so, you know, except for like breakfast and lunch and dinner, you were just stuck in the heat roasting. I remember, you know, that like you'd lay in your bunk at night and like you'd try to find like some sleeping position where like no two parts of your body would touch any other part of your body because like you were just a sweaty, sticky mess and you'd like put a box fan as close as you possibly could to you. But still, it was just... It was just gross and hot. Um, I'm pretty sure that the schedule at the camp involved like swimming every other hour because it was the only way that you could endure. And so like you'd do like your small group thing for an hour and then swim. And then you'd go over here and like do like some Jesus thing and then you'd swim. And I, I remember that. Like I remember just that we spent the entire week in the pool basically. And then I remember that there's this one chapel service one night. I always sat in the back in chapel service I said that in the first hour and like some people like they, they felt under conviction because I like mentioned the fact that I was sitting in the back. I, I, if you're sitting in the back, you're great. Um, but I always sat in the back in the chapel service because I was not interested, right? 
I wanted to like be able to get out of that gathering as quickly as I could when it was over. And so I was sitting in the back um, and there was a guy like up front speaking and he was just going on and on and on about this thing. Like he was, he was rebuking us for like consuming media that was bad for us, right? And so he was saying like, you're watching like garbage TV and garbage is coming out of you, and you're, you're listening to garbage music, and garbage is coming out of you, and you're, you're playing garbage video games, which had just been invented, right? So we were definitely were playing them, um, but garbage is coming out of you as a result. And, and that was the phrase that he kept using again and again and again. He kept saying, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. And he was, there was this like strong plea to us, all these seventh graders, right? To like stop putting garbage in. Chapel ended, we probably went and swam, and then, you know, showered and got ready for bed. And I remember that I was in my room, and my roommate at the camp was this guy that I went to school with. And it was clear that, like, Mark was under conviction, right? I was ready to go to bed, and he was like, man, I'm, I'm really wrestling with the fact that I'm putting too much garbage into my life. And so Mark went over, and he, like, got out of his suitcase, like, all of the CDs that he had brought with him on the trip. Now, if you're under the age of 20, a CD is this round plastic disc. You would point a laser at it in a CD player and it would play music. Um, that cost about $18. And you had to buy the whole CD, right? You couldn't just download one song. You had to buy the whole CD and listen to all 15 songs, even if you really only wanted one song on that CD. But Mark, he went over to his suitcase and he pulled out like this big binder of CDs that he had. If you're like in your 40s like me, you might remember those binders of CDs. Like he pulled out this big binder of CDs that he had and he's like, James, I'm just, I'm just convinced that I'm putting all this garbage into my life. And he threw his CDs away turned the light out, and went to bed. And I waited until I was sure that Mark was asleep. And then I went over to the trash can, and I took his garbage CDs out of the trash can and snuck them into my suitcase because that dude had a ton of CDs that my parents would not let me listen to, right? <laughs> music that my parents would never have permitted me to buy from the music store myself. Now again, if you're under the age of 20, a music store is a place where, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> But I, I still remember, like, that was the place where I got my hands on Metallica for the first time, right? That was the place where I got Pearl Jam 10 for the first time, which I probably wore that CD out. But I did not care, right, if I was putting garbage into my own heart, if that garbage was Enter Sandman. Mark, he cared about that, but I didn't. I still remember that today. Garbage in, garbage out. And the reason I'm like taking five minutes to tell this story is because I want you to line up that idea, garbage in, garbage out, with what James is actually teaching us right here. James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by the garbage he puts in, but by his own desire. Right, what James says is that garbage comes out because there's garbage already in here. That we're actually born with that garbage in here. Like we smell like and look like and talk like trash because we're like born in the dumpster. Right? Our desires are the problem. They are broken. They are deficient. They are at times evil. We want things that we should not want. We don't want the things that we should want. We want things too intensely and other things not intensely enough. Like our desires are the problem, not the garbage that we are consuming. Now, I think we would like it if our problem was really just 
choosing to consume the right things, right? It would be very appealing to us, like, if that were the case. Like, we could control our sin problem, right? If all, if all sin was, was, you know, consuming the wrong things and those things spewing back out, right? If all sin was, was us, like, you know, watching things that we shouldn't watch on Netflix or hanging out with the wrong kind of people, if that's all sin was, then, you know, our sin problem is nothing more than a self-control problem. We stay away from the steamier side of Netflix, hang out only with church-going folk, make sure that you know, you know, check these boxes, dot these I's, cross these T's. No sin problem, no more, because of self-control. But James rightly points to the fact that that's not where temptation comes from. Temptation doesn't come from outside of us, but it comes from inside of us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Notice that verse 14 also tells us how temptation works. Right, James says, notice those words, lured and enticed. Now, I think the language here is the language of hunting, and I just have to kind of go out on a limb on that, right? I don't, I don't hunt if you hunt more power to you, but I don't own camo, I don't own weapons. Like the idea of like getting up at four o'clock in the morning and hiding in a tree, waiting for some animal to come along, like I would just so much rather be asleep or drinking coffee in my warm house than doing those things. But if, if that's your thing, then that's great. But I just want you to think about the language here, the picture here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're to picture a predator Right, that is patiently waiting, coaxing its prey out into the open before striking, killing, dragging away, and devouring that prey. Right, that's what our evil desires do to us. And so do you see the irony here? Like we are in this illustration that James is using, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We are both predator and prey. It's our own sinful desires that are the predator, and we are the prey. Our sinful desires, they want to hunt us and to kill us and to drag us away and in the end, devour us. That's the third thing that James says about temptation. He tells us where temptation leads. Verse 15, he says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so now the language isn't hunting anymore. The language is like labor and delivery, right? Do you hear that? It's the language of conceiving and and giving birth, carrying something to full term, and then bearing something that is is alive. But he actually uses two different Greek words in verse 15 that talk about like the idea of, of childbirth. He says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. There's the first one. And then he says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth, but the Greek word there could literally be translated also, gives birth to death. And so desire conceives, gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. James is describing the way temptation works in our lives as this deadly death spiral. Lured, enticed, conceived, born dead. That's how temptation works and where temptation leads. You know, once born, sin is really just an infant, 
It's weak. It's helpless and hapless. It's easy to like subdue and restrain. But sin never stays that way. James rightly points out that it grows and it gets stronger and stronger. It gets more and more powerful. It becomes harder and harder to subdue it. A small lie becomes many lies as you attempt to cover up that first small lie. A flirtatious look becomes an affair. A harsh, angry word becomes a a pattern of hateful speech and division in a relationship. Right? Once born, sin grows until it overpowers you and then until it kills you. I have a friend who told me recently that his teenaged son beat him in arm wrestling for the first time. By the way, Elijah, I said this on Thursday to the staff, and your dad, he begged me to go out of my way to clarify that it's not you beating him for the first time in arm wrestling, which seems like your dad's actually kind of a little bit insecure about that dude. And so he must think that you're close to that if you're not already there. I'm just saying. Um, I'll gladly tell everybody about it when you beat him in arm wrestling for the first time, so just just let me know. But um, no, this wasn't Matt who told me, but my friend, he's a pretty strong guy. And this pretty strong guy, there was a moment in time in his life when when he held his infant son in his arms, right? And that baby was powerless and weak, couldn't hold its head up, right? Could, could do nothing for himself. But that baby has grown and he's now a man-child stronger than my friend who is himself a strong man. James says that's what sin is like. That's why sin leads to death when it is fully grown. You can contain it initially, but eventually as it grows and grows, it gets stronger and stronger and it gets to the point where you cannot control it any longer. Sin gets to the point where it will kill you. Now, the broader point that James is making here is that in times of trial, sin will deceive us, right? Temptation will come, and it will be easy for us to forget who we really are and what we really are like. In times of trial, we'll be tempted to sin, and we'll want to blame God for that temptation. Self-deception will make us quick to lay at God's feet what really rightly belongs only at our own. James is teaching us it's our own desire that will hunt us and kill us if we let it. Now, before I move off of this and on to the rest of the passage, I felt like there were just a couple of, of words of application that I needed to tease out for us. And so, what are we supposed to do with the first three or four verses of this passage? Let me tell you three things. There are more, but I'll, I'll tell you three things. Here's the first one. Hate all sin, but especially your own. Hate all sin, but especially your own. One of the ways that we are deceived easily in this life is when we believe that the sin that is out there is more dangerous to us than the sin that is in here. Right? One of the ways that we are most easily deceived is when we believe that like, the greatest spiritual threat to ourselves or to our family or to our church is stuff that's, that's out there rather than the stuff that is in here. We're deceived when we think that the moral evil that we see in the world is greater than the moral evil that actually exists in our own hearts. But friends, that simply isn't true. The greatest threat to your walk with Christ is always 
you. It's not the garbage you consume. Right? The greatest threat to your faith in Christ, it's not the downward moral or spiritual trajectory that you witness in our country. The greatest threat to your faith in Christ is not who got elected in the last election or who might get elected in the next election, and it's not what the Supreme Court is about to do or not to do. No, the greatest threat to your faith in Christ is the garbage that is in your heart. The greatest threat to my faith in Christ is the garbage that is in my heart. And so it is right to hate sin, yes, absolutely. But we must hate our own sin most of all. Because our own sin, it's always the most dangerous threat to us. And so rather than being an expert on your spouse's sin, or your child's sin, or your parents' sin, or your boss's sin, or your social media connection's sin, right, rather than being an expert on the sin of other people, Be an expert on your own sinful desires. Learn how the enemy is tuning your heart, not to sing the praises of God, but to capitulate to your own sinful desires. And hate those sinful desires more than you hate the sin you see in someone else's life. Hate all sin, but your own most of all. Second, kill sin early before it's too late. It's the famous Puritan pastor John Owen who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I can't confirm it, but I'm sure that Owen was thinking about this passage right here when he said that. Owen's teaching us don't coddle your sin. Don't feed the beast of your sinful desires. If you do, what is weak and controllable now will become powerful and uncontrollable soon. You might think you can manage those flirtatious looks or illicit clicks or careless white lies, but soon those things become powerful enough that they can devour you. So kill sin early before it is too late. And you know, if I could go back in time to the summer before my seventh grade year, that's the point that I would want to make to me and all of my seventh grade friends. Yes, garbage comes out of your heart because garbage is already in your heart. Your sinful desires and only your sinful desires are the cause of that garbage. But the truth is, friends, we don't have to feed our sinful desires. It is possible because of the Holy Spirit living in us for us to starve those sinful desires. We should not feed them lest they grow. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop writing in the late 19th century, and he has this great little book. It's called Thoughts for Young Men, which is just as applicable to young women as it is to young men. Ryle, he wrote this. He said, habits, like trees, are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. Uproot your sin while it is still young, while you still have the strength to do it before it is too late, before it is so strong that a hundred men cannot bend it or move it. And then thirdly, let a great awareness of your sinfulness fuel a great joy in Jesus Christ. 
in the 20 something years I've been pastoring people, in the almost 30 years now I've been following the Lord myself, right? Like I've seen time and time again that two things go hand in hand here, right? Awareness of our own sinfulness always, always goes hand in hand with great joy in Jesus. And the opposite is also true, right? If you're sitting here and your joy in Jesus is weak, like if, you're, if the vibrancy of your faith is, is flagging, if your faith is anemic and unsubstantial, right? If you don't have great joy in Jesus Christ, then I would, I would submit to you that A likely cause, maybe not the only cause, but A likely causes is simply the fact that you've lost sight of how truly sinful you are. Because when we, when we keep in the front of our minds how truly sinful we are, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the garbage that is in our hearts, then that paves the way for us to delight greatly in our Savior. That paves the way for us to make much of Jesus. When we see our sin, then our Savior seems even more beautiful. This is what Spurgeon said about this. He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. And so I just say, let a great awareness of the evil in your own heart of the conviction and the condemnation that you deserve because of that evil, let a great awareness of the rope, the, the rope that once was around your neck, let those things fuel the joy that you have in Jesus Christ through whom you stand pardoned and forgiven and redeemed. Know yourself. I'll do the second one more quickly. Know your God. Verses 13 through 15, James urges us not to be deceived about ourselves. Now in 16 through 18, he urges us not to be deceived about who God is. Let's read. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, in times of trial, James is teaching us, it's easy to lose sight of who God really is. Right? James is reminding us that the God is the fount of every blessing because it's easy in times of trials to lose sight of how good God is, to lose sight of the fact that God is the source of everything that is good, that every good and every perfect gift comes from him. And so, James, he mentions three specific characteristics about our good and generous God. First, he mentions that God is the sovereign creator. In verse 17, he calls God the father of lights. God's the father of lights because he's the creator of lights. He hung the moon. He hung the stars. He fixed the celestial bodies in their orbits. He charts their course through the night sky. He holds all things together. The God of the Bible, he is the sovereign creator. For him, all things are possible. He reigns over every corner of the galaxy and there's not one molecule or atom in existence that he did not create, that he does not sustain, and that does not in some way serve and obey his purposes. He's before all things. He's in all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. 
He holds all things together. He reigns. And it is this sovereign God, James would add, who takes interest in us, who loves us, who showers good and perfect gifts upon us. What a wonder that is. Secondly, James mentions that God is the unchanging sustainer. He says in verse 17 that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. The lights that God has created change. In the sun and the stars, there is variation and there is shadow. Sometimes those stars burn more intensely over time, sometimes less. As our planet orbits the sun, the constellations in the sky then move and change before our eyes. As the sun rises and falls, the shadows lengthen and shorten. All that God has created is in a constant state of flux and change, but not God himself. He's fixed. He's absolute. He is unmoving and unwavering and unchanging. In him there is no variation or shadow due to change, which means God is not fickle. He doesn't change his mind about his love for you. He doesn't change his mind about his commitment to you. Do you see why that's such a precious truth to hold on to, especially when you are enduring trials? When you're enduring trials, you're going to be tempted to believe this deception. God isn't for me. When you're enduring trials, you're going to be tempted to believe this deception. God is punishing me. When you're enduring trials, you're going to be tempted to believe this deception. God doesn't care about me. But remember, in him there is no variation or shadow due to change, which means that the God who set his love and affection on you from before the foundation of the earth, he holds his love and affection for you because he is an unchanging sustainer. And he's a glorious and gracious Savior. That's the third thing, verse 18. James, he says, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, God has saved his people, not because we were awesome, but because he is awesome. Not because we did great things, but because he is great. And he saved us through his word of truth, the word of the gospel, the good news that we were sinners, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly, that we might be made whole and clean and new in him. James reminds us that every good and every perfect gift is from above. And he reminds us that the greatest of God's gifts is the gift of his son, It's that fact that we must keep in front of our minds at all times and especially when we are facing trials. Do not be deceived. Know who you are. Know who your God is. And recognize that the truth is that trials, they test and expose and reveal both of those things. Trials reveal the sinful desires in our hearts. Trials reveal the goodness 
of our God. C.S. Lewis had um, a great illustration on this um, when he was talking to his students about this idea, this principle. Um, he, He wondered aloud once. He said, how would you find out if you had rats in your basement? That was the question that Lewis posed to his students. And he said, I know what you wouldn't do. He said, you wouldn't stand in your living room and say very loudly, you know, I wonder if I have rats in my basement. And then stomp over across your living room floor to the stairs to your basement and open the door very loudly and flip the light switch on and then stomp down each, every one of those stairs down to the basement floor itself and then look around to see if there are any rats there. Because of course, by that point in time, you would have scared any rats away, scurrying to the corners of the house. He said, no, if, if you want to know if you have rats in your basement, you're going to be very quiet, very sneaky. Right? You're going to tiptoe across the living room floor, being sure to not you know, step on one loose, creaky floorboard. You're going to get to the door at the top of the stairs. You're going to turn the knob ever so slowly, pull the door open ever so gently, hoping that you've you know, like applied some WD-40 to those hinges recently. Okay, probably not, because I think WD-40 was invented decades after Lewis died. Um, that was not in my notes. Uh, where am I? Opening the door. You're going to tiptoe down the stairs, right? You're going to be as quiet as you possibly can until you get to like the third step from the bottom. And then at that moment, still in the dark, you're going to jump from that third step to the bottom of the stairs. You're going to fling the light on all at once, and you're going to see are there rats in my basement? Lewis's point was that trials are like that. In trials, God jumps to the very bottom of our heart and he floods our hearts with light to expose what is really there. Right, trials, they expose, they test who we really are. But at the same time, they also test who God really is. And it is in trials that He proves again and again and again that he is faithful, that he sustains us, that he will not leave us or forsake us, and that he will, in the end, use all things for good. And so do not be deceived about yourself, brothers and sisters, but even more critically, do not be deceived about your God. He is sovereign, he is gracious, he is unchanging. Your trials will not make him those things. He already is those things. But your trials will reveal those things in him. And so do not be deceived. And as you endure trials of many kinds, let your trials reveal who God is. Behold your God. And let your trials be the waves that toss you against the rock of ages. Pray with me. God, it should be impossible for us to hold these two realities together this morning. It should be impossible for us to consider who we really are and then to consider who you really are without quaking in fear in our seats. It should be impossible for us to consider the sinfulness of our own hearts and your holy, just, 
sovereign goodness at the same time without just melting in despair. But we believe that on the cross of your son Jesus, you poured out your just, righteous wrath over all of the sinfulness in our hearts and imputed to us his perfect goodness and righteousness so that we can stand before you as your people now. And Lord, that doesn't mean we're perfect. We are still prone to wonder, prone to leave you, prone to pursue the desires of our own hearts. But we pray, God, that you will use trials in our lives to expose those sinful desires that we may put them to death and to expose again and again your goodness so that our vision of your goodness might transform us and lead us to follow, serve, and honor you with our lives. We pray all that today. In Jesus' name, amen.